You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Proven Principles for Good Health, Episode 3, with Diana Burnett. Greetings to all our friends of Amazing Discoveries. We want to thank you for joining us again today on another adventure and talking about our health and the wonderful promises that we have that God cares about us and He wants us to be in health. As we are talking about health, our topics have been on the line of how our mind works. And today we're going to continue with those ideas. We had talked in previous sessions about the physiology of addiction. But God doesn't want us to stay in an addictive state. He doesn't want us to be slaves to any harmful thing. He wants us to have victory. Our message today, I pray, will be a message of victory for each and every one of us. We could call it rebuilding the sound mind. When Adam and Eve fell from their high and holy state, that perfect state of health, their mind was changed. It was actually broken. And God wants to restore our mind to soundness. He wants to give us back the self-control that we lost. You might ask the question, what really is health? Health is the state of being free from illness or any injury. But it's not just a physical thing. It's a matter of wholeness of your whole body and your mind. And when you think of those two functions together, your body and your mind, that also means your emotional well-being and it means your spiritual well-being. So we want God wants us to be healthy of our body, our mind, our soul. In fact, in the Bible, the word for salvation actually can be translated to mean health. It means wholeness. And that's what God wants for us. When we think that God wants to save us, what he's telling us is, I want you to be back into soundness of mind and body. So if you have any of the brokenness that has come in for any reason, you can be assured that God wants to do everything he can to bring you back to sound health. In fact, here's a scripture that tells us that. I I love the passage that we find in the Bible in 3 John, verse 2, we're told, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. I don't think any of us would disagree that God wants our soul to prosper. And what this is saying in this scripture is that God wants our physical health, our mental and emotional health, to prosper just as he wants us to have the gift of salvation. It's a whole body experience that he wants to give us. As we look how God created Adam and Eve, how he created this world, and the principles that operate, I've put it in an acronym. If we look at the word creation, if we take it word by word, Here are the laws of health that were given to Adam and Eve at the beginning and actually are the principles of health in each one of our lives today. The first one for C is choice. 
Everything depends on what choice you make. Do you realize that God has put the freedom of choice as one of the highest principles of heaven? Here is the God, the monarch of the universe, our creator, and he will allow you to have your own choice. So you can make choices that will break down your health, but you can also make choices that will follow the principles to bring you right um, balance, right health in your body. And so I believe that this is in an appropriate um, lineup. It is one of the key things that you must understand in order to have health. You must make right choices. Right choices on rest. R is for rest. We must get proper sleep. We must not overwork. So there's ways that God wants us. We have time for labor, and then we have time for work. This is a daily thing. Our body um, operates on rest. Your kidneys must rotate through. Only a third of your parts of your your kidney cells function at a time. Some work, and then the rest rest. And then when that third that has been working, it needs a rest, and then the other parts come in. So even your cells need rest. The E is for environment. Now when we think of our environment, there's three parts to our environment. There's the air that we breathe, there's the, the sun that lights the sky, and there's water, water around us. Those three um, things in our environment impact our health. A is for activity. I like activity instead of exercise because sometimes when we think of exercise, we think more of whether it's walking or jogging and lifting weights, swimming, all the different ways that we exercise. But when we think of activity, it's a little broader scope. It has to do with mental activity as well. Activity can focus on our creativity, being involved with art and music, doing things that activate our mind. And it also has to do with being involved with other people, taking care of others, doing community projects. That helps us have a balanced life. The T is for trust in our Creator. It's an amazing thing that in science today, in the medical field, they have always looked at how the body functions, how your digestive organs work, how your lungs and your heart. But some of the focus today in research is on the spiritual part of man. And they do studies where they take a group of people who practice prayer and have faith, and they look at those who do not, who, who do not practice any spiritual belief system. And they have actually found that those who have faith in God, that they will heal faster, their recovery is deeper and better, that they don't require as much care as those who do not have any faith. So having a connection with God, who is the great physician, is one of the keys to health. If we take God out of the picture, we really become like most of the other religions of the world. You know, there's a lot of belief systems out there.
but almost all of them have a health message. They have principles that they follow. The New Age system has incredible health principles. They teach that you need to eat proper food. They teach that you need to take time to rest. But the main difference between what Christianity, teach, uh, Christianity teaches and New Age is that with the Christian, we realize that our source of healing is from one source, and that's our God. Where with New Age, the power comes from within. So if you don't have enough power, which none of us do, you're not going to get the full benefit as, if, as when you are linked to our God. The I is for interpersonal. It's how we interact with other people. One of my favorite um, statistics to demonstrate how interpersonal um, re relates to our health is the idea, scientists have measured this, that when you are angry for whatever reason, but you're angry for just five minutes, they have seen that the cortisol that is produced from that anger subdues the immune system for six hours. Your immune system is what fights the battle of disease. It's what keeps you in health. And so five minutes of anger, which is usually an interpersonal thing, I guess you could be mad at your dog as well, but the relationships you have with others, whether it be loving or whether it be tense and stressful, is going to impact your life. I like this O. O is for outlook. It's your attitude towards things. You know that saying that says, if, if the, your life is given a dish of lemons, make lemonade. That's your outlook. All right, well, this bad thing's happened to me, but I'm going to turn it into good. I'm going to see what message God has for me. And I realize that bad things happen, but above all the darkness that we face, we have hope in the future. And God is with us to give us strength. So our outlook has a huge impact on our health. And last but not least, definitely, is good nutrition and water internally. So if you look at these three, um, actually there are eight things that were given in creation. This is the foundation of health. And when Adam and Eve stepped outside of God's laws, their health system was broken. And what we need is what we're told in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7. We read that God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You might have heard me say this before because this is one of my favorite scriptures. How many of you long for a sound mind? All of us at some point in life, with all of its pressures, feel a little out of kilter, maybe a lot, but it is God who gives us soundness of mind. And this word actually is more than soundness of mind. The translation is self-control. Self-control is one of the most important factors in the successfulness of anyone's life. Now, when you look at this slide, you might wonder, 
what I've got up there. And I don't know if how many of you are familiar with the marshmallow test, but if you have access to the internet, just put it in your search in engine and um, you will see the marshmallow test. I'm not going to take the time to do it today, but it is incredible. It is so cute. What it was, was a, um, a researcher at Stanford's University. His name's um, Walter Michelle. And what he did, his, he took some um, students that were in the same class, the same school as his children, and he decided to do a test to see how their self-control measured up. So what he did is he took a classroom, and there was a long table, and each child, one child at a time put in the room by themselves, was given a marshmallow, one marshmallow. And the assistant that was giving the marshmallow explained to the child, now, if you will wait, not eat this marshmallow now, when I come back, I will give you another marshmallow. So you can have two marshmallows if you'll wait. But if you eat it now, you don't get another marshmallow. And so it just shows how each one of these different children reacted and the things that they did to try to keep from eating the marshmallow. Well, the interesting thing on this marshmallow test was that there was a unique follow-up. Because the researcher followed some of the students that were the same age as his children, when they got into college, he brought them back in and did a questionnaire on them. And what he found on the um, individuals as a child that exercised self-control and would say, okay, I'm not going to eat that marshmallow, when they could exercise self-control as a child, their whole life was more successful. What he found is that these students with self-control had higher SAT tests. That's their, their um, scores, their intellectual ability was greater. They had less substance abuse. They had less obesity. They had greater stress, stress control, more social skills, and in every other measure of life success, they had higher ability. So the greatest thing that we need is self-control. In fact, there is another um, man by the name of Baumaster, and he did a series of experiments. And I just want to summarize some of the things that he found in dealing with self-control. As we look at our slide, we can see that Baum Baumeister, I might be saying his name wrong, he was one of the first to demonstrate the existence of what we call willpower. And in all these studies he did, here was his conclusion. Most of the major problems that people face in life, whether it's personal or social, centers on the failure of self-control. They did questionnaires. They sent out um, surveys to over a million people. And they asked them to evaluate what they thought was their greatest strengths and what they thought was their greatest weakness. And what they found is that self-control was on the dead bottom of their greatest strengths. No one, maybe a rare person, 
put self-control as one of their personal strength, but it was down at the bottom of the heap. But conversely, if they asked them what they felt was one of the greatest personal failings, the top of the list was self-control. Now, that's good news and bad news. The bad news is we need self-control, and it leads to failure in our life. The only reason I think it could be good news is because misery loves company. And you must realize the failings that you have are the failings of humanity. It's a struggle that we all have. Let's see. We face something every year as we have the turn of a year. So when we go from December to January, people have this tradition of making what we call New Year's resolutions. At the beginning of the year, a very common resolution is, I am going to get in shape. And people go down and sign up for a fitness center. And they usually have a sale to entice people to come in because they know that within a month to three months at the longest, that the majority of their clientele will be gone but they have their money because they have to pay for a year. So it doesn't matter whether they come, they've got their money. It's a great failing. We have good intentions, but our self-control to keep disciplining ourselves is really lacking. As we put this into the spiritual picture, we realize that what has happened is that our enemy, Satan, who desires our defeat, has brought his principles into our own life. And his principles is that the frontal lobe, where you have really discipline to say, no, I'm not going to do this because it's not going to make me healthier. And so you can deny your limbic system. But what he wants you to do is live by your limbic system. He wants you to say, if it feels good, I'm going to do it. I don't care what the consequences are because I know I can be happy for this moment. So that is where the slavery comes in. Listen to a statement that is found in an incredible book called Mount of Blessings. It's a, it's a book that talks about the Sermon on the Mount. And we're told that the battle which we have to fight is the surrender of self to the will of God. We must yield our hearts to the sovereignty of love, but that's one of our hardest things. So when we think of all the battles, it's not against our spouse, our children, our neighbors, our countries. The greatest battle is within ourselves. The stories told about Napoleon, he conquered the world in a short amount of time. Uh, excuse me, I said Napoleon. What I meant is Alexander the Great. He was the one that went through and conquered the then known world, but he couldn't conquer himself, and therefore he didn't hold the position of king on the mountain because he couldn't overcome his own problems. In our previous talks, The Physiology of Addiction, we noticed that when we fall into a pattern that is harmful, when we do a, an addictive behavior, when we have fallen into sin, 
that we get a dopamine rush. It's associated with pleasure. But as we see on this slide, the path to victory is going to be the opposite of the path to addiction or to sin. The step down in sin is associated with pleasure. But the steps back up out of addiction, the steps to obedience, is associated with pain. That might not sound good, but that is the way we function. Now, you, I've heard some little oohs and ahs on this, that it's like, oh, that can't be. Because when I say that the step to obedience is associated with pain, that makes it sound like turning your life back over to God into being obedient to his rules is, a, is painful and not joyful. Well, I don't want to say that it's not joyful, but I think the reality is, if you think about it, changing behavior patterns, whatever they could be, is difficult. And sometimes it is literally painful, denying ourselves. Let's see what that means. I, I want to read this statement to you. This is from Ministry of Healings, a great book on the way that Jesus healed and how he wants us to pattern our healing. It says, The strongest evidence of man's fall from a higher state to a lower state is the fact that it cost so much to return. Its accomplishment will require toil, time, perseverance, patience, and sacrifice. We might be successful in any of these um, areas for a short period of time. We might be gung-ho and think, okay, I'm going to do this. But very few of us are persevering enough to endure the sacrifice. We don't like toiling. We like things to be easy. And really, in many parts of our country, the country I come from, the United States, I've had a life of ease. I don't worry about where my food comes from. I have enough money to get gas in my car and to go to the grocery store. So my life has been rather comfortable. It hasn't been without pains, but it's been comfortable. But overall, some of the changes that have to take place in my life are very demanding. And I want to say I believe that we must have perseverance to go through with this. So as we have fallen, as soon as Adam and Eve entered into this new existence of sin, remember that God came to visit them. And in the final parts of chapter 3, we see the conversation between God and Adam and Eve, and the serpent was also there, Satan, who was represented by the serpent. And there's a list of things that God says. And one of the things he told to Adam was that the ground would be cursed for his sake. And he said, In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. If you go through and read all of the things that God said, it's associated with sorrow. He said to Eve, In sorrow you will give birth. There's pain associated with our life now because of sin. 
But what I want you to know is there is good news in this pain. When we look at this, the first word there is cursed. But I want you to know that this cursing is really a blessing because God knows what it's going to take to heal us. Scientists have found out that when man works with the soil, whether you are walking through it, but when you're doing gardening in particular, pulling weeds, disrupting the soil, that the bacteria that grow in the soil are disrupted and you breathe some of it in, or it can even get into your hands or through your feet. And that bacteria in some process causes a release of serotonin in the brain. And serotonin is the hormone that makes us happy about life. It makes us energetic. It makes us alert and alive. So when you think about this, if you were Adam, do you think you would be a candidate for depression? I believe Adam was one of the saddest men that ever lived. He lived almost a thousand years, and every day that he lived, he had to see a result of his wrong choice. And initially, he dreaded dying. He never knew what it was to die. But shortly after sin, they witnessed death. They saw flowers die. And they even saw their first son murder their second son. And so his life was filled with pain and misery, sorrow. Even though he had the hope of salvation, it was still a painful life. And so God gave him this activity. The ground changed so that while he was out working harder in the ground, that he would have a natural antidepressant. They have found that serotonin decreases anxiety and actually increases learning skills. So what God gives us that seems hard in the long run is a blessing. Let's go and look at this graph here, and we will see that when we experience sin or any addiction, that we have a dopamine rush. And so as you see on this slide, this slide is actually what happens when a person takes the chemical drug ecstasy. And it's the effect that it has on the dopamine output in the brain. And so at the day one, at that flat point, right before they take the drug, their dopamine level is rather um, even where it should be on a daily um, level. But they take the drug and they get this huge dopamine rush. And it actually lasts about 24 hours. So it peaks on the second day and they have what is called the high. And their sense of euphoria is incredible. Nothing can go wrong. It doesn't matter if they are facing losing their job or a a spouse or anything like that. They are just feeling elated. But then the drug begins to wear off. And by the third day, they reach their lowest point. It's called the crash. I believe that guilt is comes in during this crash. We have this sense of failure. So you go from feeling like nothing could be wrong 
to feeling like nothing could be right. And the saddest part is that from day three, it takes seven days for the dopamine levels to come back up to normal. What happens is when we go through these highs and lows, we remember that it felt good to be high and it feels miserable to be low. So we want to experience that high again. And so a person then will say, well, I know where I got that high, let's take that drug again. And so they take it again, but every time they do the drug, something happens in the brain and they don't go as high as they did before, so they need more of the substance. I'll show you some scans of the brain that will explain what's happening. But one of the things that I want you to understand how the brain works that will help us in this pattern of addiction is that the brain wants several things. And it's very important for us to understand that we shouldn't chase the dopamine. In the book, What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite, this is an incredible book. If you ever want to read a good book, this book is great. It's by David DeSalvo. He summarizes these four things. The brain wants to be happy. The brain wants to be right. The brain wants to be secure. And the brain wants what it doesn't have. These are driving forces in the brain. Now, if you are in a perfect situation, there's nothing wrong with being happy. There's nothing wrong with being right. We really shouldn't be wrong. But if you think about it, if you're with two people and you say something different, this is where arguments come up because this person thinks they're right and this person thinks they're right and they're in conflict. And so you're going to argue because you do not want to be wrong. So we've got to realize these things of what's driving our brains when we're interacting with others and even with ourselves. So let's move on. I want to show you these slides. These are scans that have been done of the brain's reward center. And in our upper left square, we see the normal brain. And here in the reward center, you see a balance. The red that you see are areas of high dopamine receptors, which means there's normal, normal pleasure and interest. In the, green, in the yellow, it is medium dopa- dopamine receptors. And so there's a little bit of a dampening effect. It's a little more difficult to feel joy or pleasure. In the green areas that we see, there is very low dopamine receptors. There's a lack of pleasure. Now, what scientists have found, at first they thought, oh, well, some people are born with more dopamine receptors than others. Now, this isn't dopamine itself, but it's the the ports where the dopamine released from another place will lock in and send the message of euphoria or pleasure. But as they started studying and they looked at it, they found that what really happens is that there are the dopamine receptors shut down when there's an over-release of dopamine such as doing an activity that is harmful, whether it be a drug like ecstasy or even nicotine, caffeine. And you know, I want to tell you, this might kind of make some of you uneasy, but one of people's favorite drugs are substances that release a lot of dopamine is chocolate because chocolate has substances in it 
not only chemicals like caffeine and theobromine, but it also has high amounts of sugar and high amounts of fat that release large amounts of dopamine. So when we imbibe on some of these things that give us too much dopamine, the brain's protective measures is to close up the doors so that even though the dopamine comes in, you do not experience the overaction of exhilaration and excitement. So if we look at the, the top right-hand side, this is a brain scan of an obese person. And you will notice right off that you see almost the, no red. You might not see it on your screen, but um, close up, there's just faint, faint little reds. So an ob obese person does not have as much ability to have the feelings of joy and pleasure. And so their pleasure that they get from food has to be greater. So they tend to eat more than other people. And they tend to eat foods that give more of a dopamine release. And then when we look at the green, we'll see in the cocaine user on the bottom left and on the alcoholic on the bottom right, that they, the alcoholic has a little bit on that um, scan that's done, but you have mostly yellows, and on the cocaine user, you have mostly greens. So these people come to a place where they have very low dopamine receptors, and it's very difficult for them to experience pleasure on a normal level. And so the more they turn to substances to try to find pleasure, the more dop dopamine receptors close down. And this is the pattern that people get into of the addictive cycle. There's physiological things that happen that make you dependent on that substance. And there's the emotional side of feelings of the dopamine rush that keep wanting you to get more and more of the substance so that you can override the dopamine receptors that are shut down. While we've looked at the dopamine, I want to move on and look at how the brain makes decisions. And while we have 80 billion neurons and how many different supporting cells in the brain, that's uncounted at this part, let's distill it down to three simple cells. Now this is very simplified, mind you, because the whole function of what's going on even in a split second of a decision is very complicated. But to understand some of the basics, we'll take one cell in the upper left. Let's say that that cell is the one that says, no, don't do something. And on the upper right, we have the cell that says, yes, let's do it. Now, I want to tell you while we're looking at this, we're talking about the will. And so scientists have not been able to really put their finger down and say, this part of the brain right here is the will. There's something where they're all integrated together that bring this force of your will and the willpower that is generated from it. So I can't tell you, it's like I can tell you where the frontal lobe is and the um, nucleus accumbens. The will is more um, pervasive of our understanding. We can only look at its function. So let's go back to this. And in my picture, you see a little girl in the bottom right-hand corner. 
One of the first principles of nerve firing is that it only takes 10 millivolts of electricity for the nerve to fire. That's very little energy. Well, you've got two cells, two different factors going on. You've got one that's saying, yes, Susie, let's eat the cookie. And the other is saying, oh, don't eat it, don't eat it. Which one's going to fire? Because they're both being stimulated. There's different messages going on in her mind. And which one's going to be fired? The answer is, as you look at them, it depends on the um, intensity of the decision of both ones, like how much you really want to do it and how much you really don't want to do it. And it's measurable in electrical force. So you need 10 millivolts of electricity difference. So let's say this, the cells that are responsible to make you go forward and eat that cookie generates 50 millivolts of electricity. And the parts of your brain that say, oh, I really shouldn't do it, only generates 20 millivolts of electricity. It's a matter of simple math. 50 minus 20 is 30. That's more than 10 millivolts, and so the pathway to go ahead and eat the cookie is fired. A few weeks, a few months later, probably a few weeks because it doesn't take long for this same thing to happen again. The same scenario comes up. Susie's hungry when she comes in the door. Mom's outside hanging the clothes on the, on the clothesline. And she's in the kitchen all by herself. And the smell of fresh-baked cookies are all through the house. And all of that stimulation starts up again. All of her hunger, the growling in her stomach, the taste buds are just coming alive, remembering what it's like to bite into that cookie. But now Susie has experience. She remembers that when she does something, there's a negative result. And she remembers that in a few days that one of her best friends is having a birthday party. And mom's already told her that if she disobeys, she is not going to get to go to that birthday party. And so now as the brain is contemplating and thinking all these different um, sensations are going on and thought processes, the side of the brain that is saying, yes, eat that cookie, it's very strong. It's as strong as it was the last time she failed. It generates 50 millivolts of electricity. But because of her experience, the pain she had from not being able to play with her friend before and the thought that she wouldn't be able to go to the birthday party has a little more impact on the brain cells that are saying, Susie, you ought to obey. You really need to do what is right. Mama knows what's best. And so the side that's going to tell her don't actually comes up with 60 millivolts of electricity. So let's do the math. 60 minus 50 is 10 millivolts. And what's going to fire? It's going to be the side that says, don't do it. And this time, instead of the hormone like acetylcholine that causes that nerve to fire, there's a different hormone, which is GABA. And GABA is like the brakes. It's like, no, don't do it. 
and it comes to a screeching halt, and no electrical current goes down the pathway to stimulate the nerves that would pick up that cookie and put it in her mouth. But I want you to notice, as we look at this, the side, the part of your brains that's saying, don't do it, only surpasses the side that wants you to do it by 10 millivolts. That's all we need to have a right decision, but it's a very narrow margin. What if she only had 59 millivolts? She would not have had enough strength to say no. And as she continues looking at that cookie, the strength of the other side to do it would grow, and she would fall into it and eat it again. So one of the principles in overcoming any habit of addiction is that you want to not play with the temptation. You want to stay away from it, and you want to make firm decisions because the stronger you've put into that force, what we call willpower, the stronger your determination is to follow it, the greater the electrical impulse that will be generated in the brain. So instead of just having 60 millivolts, what Susie really needed was 80 or 100 that says, no, I'm not going to do this, and just walk out of the kitchen quickly. Get away from the temptation. There's something else that you need to learn about the principles of nerve firing. And that is, as we look on the, our list here, the, one of the important things is that the pathways, the neural pathways, will change with activity. What that means is that every time a nerve fires, it actually increases in size. It's just like electrical wires. In fact, sometimes I wonder if the people who uh, invented electricity understood the brain because our wiring is um, patterned in our electrical system. When you have a, um, an electrical tool and you plug it in, it's that electricity going down that cord that goes from the plug where you put it to the machine. So if we look at... Um, different gauges of wires that is used for electricity, we can see this principle. So we see that the larger the gauge, actually we have the smaller number. So on the far left, we have a gauge 10 wire, and they get progressively smaller down to 28. So the bigger the wire is, the less resistance there is to the electrical current going down it, and it will carry a greater load of electricity. It's exactly the same in the brain, and God made it that way so that every time uh, an electron will fire, it will be easier the next time to do the same thing. Now, that's a good thing if you're doing a good habit, but it's a horrible thing if you're doing bad. And we just tend to make wrong choices, and so we get these wrong pathways going. And so what happens when you have these good, these bad pathways building up, and the pathway to do right will actually stay small? It will be less thinking to make it go down the wrong path. But every time you make a right choice and say, no, I'm not going to do that, and turn away from it, it will begin to build the good pathway and make it easier and easier. 
And the good news about that also is, is that the bad pathways will diminish in size. Let me give you an example to explain what happens, just in something that's basic, not a moral issue necessarily. But take playing the piano. If any of you have ever picked up any instrument or anything that we learn how to do, it follows this pattern. So when you're first learning how to play the piano, you're pink, pink, you know, you're just plucking away and the coordination, watching the note and figuring out what, where to put your finger in the right place, you start off, you're in kindergarten and you have to practice and practice. And what happens after years of practice? Pretty soon, have you seen people that can just sit down at the piano and they can carry on a conversation while they're just fluently moving along and playing that beautiful music as though they're not even thinking? What has happened is every time they sat down to practice, those neurons were recording it and the electrical current was actually causing it to grow and it took less and less effort to follow that pattern and it was firmly embedded in the memory and it got to the point where they don't even have to think about it because it just flows. That's the same with every other habit that we have, especially our bad ones, they can be changed to good ones. So let's go back to little Susie here. We were told that when Adam and Eve sinned, they thought that they would gain strength, that they would become as gods. But what they really gained was weakness. Let's put it in a brain sense. What really happened was Adam and Eve lost that 10 millivolt advantage to choose to do what was right. And that's why God could say to them, you think that you can obey after this. But now that you let Satan in, that pathway to follow him, your allegiance to him, your attraction, your addiction to that pleasure that you received from doing what was wrong makes it easier for you to choose that way. You have more electrical current going down that path. And the 10 millivolts of electricity difference that you need, you no longer have. And it wasn't just a, a reaction because of what happened in the brain. It was a result of losing the Holy Spirit. When Adam and Eve were created, they were clothed in a robe of light. After they fell, they lost that robe of light that signified that the presence of God, the God of life, the God who gives us that electrical current had left them. Not totally or they would have died instantly. He sustained them enough to give them a life of probation. So what we see is that 10 millivolts of electricity that we need to do what is right does not exist in our life. I want to tell you, you can never change who you are on your own. I believe that even when an atheist makes a good decision, like giving up smoking, that it's not because of generating goodness out of himself, but I believe that God empowers every human being to make a choice in the right direction. 
And so when we look at our need to overcome and break this slavery, it is always that we can turn to God because He is the source of this 10 millivolts of electricity. I've seen this demonstration of how we make changes in our life. So habit development can be stated as we see up here. Let's, let's go through this and kind of untwine um, it here. The first one is we're unconsciously unconscious. So what that means is we don't even know that we're doing wrong. We haven't been educated. We've never heard that eating between meals was wrong. Let me just use that as an example. And so the first step is that you have to be made aware that something's wrong. And so you move to the second. You become consciously unconscious. That means you become aware that you're ignorant. And then as you start studying and making decisions to change, you become consciously conscious of your behavior. You know, it's like when you're first trying to change something in your life, whether it's picking up um, an exercise routine or making any changes in your diet. At first, it's very difficult because it's unfamiliar to you. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And the goal that God has for us, ultimately, is that we become unconsciously conscious that when we're doing good, that we're not even aware of it. It's just our life pattern. So that's our goal, and that's the progression as we carry on day by day, step by step, trying to make the right choices and committing to make the right choices. What we need to get back into our pattern of perfect health. Now is we can't go back to creation, but what we need is recreation. So all the things that God gave us to keep health is what we need to put back into our lives. We need to start making the right choices and, and finding um, the patterns of good rest and exercise and taking care of our bodies in the way that Adam and Eve were designed and, and educated to do in the garden. So we want recreation. And how do we do that? Remember I told you that sin brings weakness. But the first promise that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 was that there would be a Redeemer, that Jesus would come and he would give our, his life for us. And by his blood, we would be able to overcome again. And in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 in the New Testament, this is one of my favorite verses for claiming the power to overcome. It says that, For it is God which works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Because it's not just a lack of strength that it takes to overcome something, it's a lack of desire. Many times we don't even want to change. And this could be a key point. We need to go to God and tell him the truth. When we confess our sins to God, what that really means is that we're saying the same thing that he is saying. God already knows your heart. And he knows that you don't want to give up this thing that you're, you're addicted to, that you're tied to, that 
seems to bring you pleasure, even if there's bad consequences. And he wants you to say the truth. And you tell the Lord, I don't even want to change. I don't even want to start doing this. I can't fit it in. I'm too busy to try to exercise. It's too hard to change. We need to tell God really how we feel. Because then we can ask him, even though I don't want to, you promised that you would give me the will, the desire to do it. And then he says he will give you his strength so that you can not only will to do it, but that you have strength to do it. One of the other scriptures that I claim for this power, for that 10 millivolts of power, is in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, that we might walk, how? In our own strength, but know that we're strengthened with all might, all the might that Jesus had in his life on this earth is given to ours, to us, if we are willing to surrender to the Lord. I want to tell you a story. This story is about a man named DeWitt Williams. And I heard him as he was describing the changes that he went through when he was changing his dietary habits. He found out that meat was not the best um, things to, the best thing to eat for his health, and he made a decision he was going to stop eating meat. Well, shortly after making that decision, he and his wife went to a conference, and the first meal that he went to, as he and his wife enter into the cafeteria, he walks in and guess what they're serving. It was his very favorite meat, spare ribs. And he looked at that and he said, I'm in trouble. And he left the cafeteria, went up to his room and locked himself into the bathroom. And he told himself, I am not leaving until I have the victory. And he stayed on his knees for three hours until that battle between his limbic system and his frontal lobe was, sur was won, that he could surrender his will, his desire to eat those spare ribs to God and say, not my will, but your will. Then he was safe to go out. So that was a huge lesson to me. Sometimes in our battle against sin, against addictions, we think that it's a simple thing. Oh, I'll just pray and it'll be gone. And if it's not gone in five minutes, maybe even 30 minutes, we give up. And we say, oh, well, we find an excuse and we just do it. We must persevere and we must hold on and we must be determined that we are not going to give in to these um, temptations that are harming our life. I want to read a passage to you. It's a prayer that each one of us need to pray. It says, pray that the mighty energies of the Holy Spirit with all their quickening, recuperative, and transforming power may fall like an electric shock on the palsy-stricken soul 
causing every nerve to thrill with new life, restoring the whole man from his dead, earthly, sensual state to spiritual soundness. What it is saying is that we need to ask God to give us of His Spirit, that the electrical power that we need to overcome our earthly fallen state will be abundantly given to us because God's recreative power will then be in us to give us back that soundness of mind, that self-control. So how are we going to learn what is the right path to take? There's one of a passage in the Bible that a lot of us know. It is Psalms 119, verse 105. It says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Have you ever memorized that scripture? And what do you think about? The word is a lamp unto my feet. Is it we're holding the Bible in it and it lights our path? What I believe that it's, it's lighting our path in the sense that when we hide the word in our brain, that when we are fighting a battle of temptation, that the scriptures will be our defense and the Holy Spirit will light up a word from God and in our brain, that creative word, that the power that's in the Bible will cause us to think a different path. And I will end that as the scripture comes to our mind, we will say, oh, this is the path, and I will follow it. It says in another um, passage in Psalms 119, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And it is very important, if you are battling any battle with any temptation, any sin, the key to success is to memorize Scripture. As you read these promises, they are a living power that God will put in you. And as you say, but Lord, you said you would give me power to overcome. And then that word will help us make right decisions. Well, we're talking about making right decisions and eventually that we come to a decision, whether it's right or wrong. But what happens in between when there's still that state of division that you know what's right to do, but you really don't want to do it? You have this drive to do the opposite of what you know is right. It's called a divided mind. And in the Bible, in James 1.8, it says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let's look at the brain, and I'll show you what that means, what's going on. In the book, Healing the Broken Brain by Dr. Chalmers, he describes what happens in the brain when you're in conflict. The brain desires harmony. It hates strife. It hates division. And so it will do whatever it has to do to come back into harmony. In order for that to happen, you have some choices. One, you can see that you can obey the desire. So you follow the limbic system. But if you do that, you're going to have to do something to the information that tells you what to do to what that's right. And so you're going to change the law. So 
if there's a difference between what your frontal lobe's telling you to do and your limbic system, you can obey what your limbic system is saying to do, or you can say, if you do that, in order to be in harmony, you've got to change the principles of what is telling you what's right to do. Or you could obey the law. You can. It's like, okay, the, the Lord tells me that I should not um, bear false witness. So I'm going to stop lying. But you've had this habit, and there's something in our nature that makes us want to protect ourselves, and we might need to tell a lie so that we look better than we really are. So if you change, if you obey the law, but deny the desire, are you in harmony yet? That won't bring you into harmony. Even if you do what you know is right, but there's this internal part of you that you still desire to do what's wrong. What you're going to need to do is a third option. The third option is what we call conversion. And conversion has to be continual because the temptations continue to come. But what is conversion in terms of the, the brain? Well, let's look at it. Conversion is where the desires come into harmony with the laws of God that there's no longer conflict, that the laws that God gives us is the same as what our desires are. Why is that important? Because scientists know that if the thoughts are wrong, your feelings will be wrong. Because the thoughts and the feelings continually make up the character. So thoughts and feelings thoughts in the frontal lobe, and feelings in the limbic system have an interreaction with each other. If your feelings aren't right, your thoughts aren't going to be right. And so what you need is a change in the limbic system as well as in the, the thought processes, what you accept as being right or wrong. There is one of my favorite books on the life of Christ, The Desire of Ages. And it describes this conversion process. It says that all true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts in our frontal lobes, our aims, which is our motivation from the limbic system, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity with his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. This is what we need to seek for. We can go to meetings, we can go to Bible studies, and you can hear principles from the Word of God that convince you of certain um, behaviors, certain doctrines, and you can be convinced because you believe the Bible is true. And in your frontal lobe, you say, this is true, this is true. But that doesn't mean that our limbic system has been changed. If you go to a series of meetings, and let's just say that you learn something different. For instance, perhaps you learn that 
the Bible talks about the seventh day being the Sabbath. And you hear all these scriptures that support that, and you are convinced that it's right. However, if you change, and instead of having a different day, you want to change to Sunday, you're going to lose your job. Or perhaps you're going to lose your friends or even your spouse because I've seen it happen that there's threats. And so because of the pressure of what you would have to give up, the limbic system to protect yourself and to not lose what you would lose from that change, you're going to change the principles that you learned. So the laws that you saw in the Bible, you're going to have to change. And so people will go and they will ask different pastors, different theologians, friends. It's like, well, what do you think about this? Oh, that's, that's been done away with. Or, oh, you don't really need to do that. We do something to justify our behavior in order to bring harmony into the brain. Because if you decide you're not going to change, you're going to have to somehow change why you're going to go against the principle. The best position to take when you are convicted that something is right, you ask God for the conversion of your heart, of your frontal lobe, and of your limbic system so that your greatest desire will be his desire and you will follow out his will. So where does our victory and our strength come from? Is it by going to lectures over and over again to, about health and learning principles? Is it, you know, all these different aspects that we learn and educate ourselves? That's important. That has a lot to do with um, changing our lives. But that's not the foundation. There's a passage that was written in a manuscript hundreds of a hundred years ago or so, and here's what it says. No mere restriction of your diet will cure your diseased appetite. Men will never truly be temperate until the grace of God is an abiding principle in the heart, until their hearts are transformed by the grace of God. The greatest thing that was lost with Adam and Eve was the loss of God that connection with him. And it left a void in the heart that man has tried to fill ever since, whether it be with drugs, food, sex, gambling. We have all kinds of addictions to fill that void. And not until our brokenness is healed by the love of God will we ever have the true motivation to make any changes in our life. So the gospel message that God really has from us could be back into this picture that I have been showing you of the authority pattern that God has. And we see that obedience is having God, the higher power, over us as the lower power. But we know that we have fallen. So as we look from Genesis to Revelation, let's move through and just go through what we have talked about in these presentations. 
rebellion took place when the lower power usurped its author- the authority of the higher power. And so in our brain, we have the limbic system over the frontal lobe. I am going to do what I want to do is basically rebellion. So what is it going to take for our salvation? What is the way back out of this rebellion? The step to restoration is profound. Let's look at it in this slide. On the far right, we see restoration. So in order to go from the limbic system over the frontal lobe, what happened if you will notice the position of God? The highest power humbled himself below the lower power in order for us to be saved. And that was the only thing that would restore the frontal lobe to its position of higher power over the limbic system of the lower power. You know how they say a picture is worth a thousand words? This was a picture of the gospel message. When Jesus at the Last Supper humbled himself below his disciples that rejected him and washed their feet, this is the God of heaven that humbled himself in order that we could be saved. This is the message that is in Philippians. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, the highest power, took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. If you were God, would you do that? He didn't just become like Adam unfallen. He came into this world where corruption has entered in. So when we let that mind be in us, that was Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. But let's go back to what it says in verse 3. If we take on this mind of Christ, we will in lowliness of mind esteem others better than ourselves. And so when we have that humbleness of mind, we will not have to contend for our rights. We won't have to get into an argument to say, I'm right. We won't have to do whatever it takes to make me happy, even if it means someone else is going to lose out. We're going to look at other people, and we're going to esteem them better than ourselves. And that is how the mind of Jesus is restored in us. At the beginning of our series, The Physiology of Addiction, I mentioned the passage in Revelation 3.21. The great promise that Jesus gives to those that overcome, that break free from this slavery. He says, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I am sat down with my Father in his throne. Let's look at that in view of the things that we've been studying. I asked you, what is, the, what is a throne? It's where the king 
um, abides. It's his place where the king sits. And what is the throne in our body? It's our frontal lobe. It's the way we think. It's our character. And so I believe that even though God will have a throne in his kingdom and that we will go before him and worship him, what Jesus is saying is, he that overcometh, I will let you be. You will become like me. You will sit in my throne. Your mind will be like my mind because Jesus' throne room is his frontal lobe. It's his character. And as he works in us, as we choose to obey him through his strength, he is changing our mind to be like him. And so he's telling us, you're going to sit in my throne. You know how I know that's true? Because he says, even as I also overcame and am sat down in my father's throne. What Jesus is saying is if you will overcome the way I overcame, that's how you are going to sit in our throne. How did Jesus overcome? There are two places in the Bible, two specific incidences in the life of Christ where he fought a great battle against Satan. And the first is in Matthew 4, in the wilderness experience, where the devil came to him after 40 days of fasting, and he tempted him. And the first temptation was on appetite. And how did Jesus overcome? He quoted scripture. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If we will stand on that principle, Satan can never overcome us. And the second place was in the Garden of Gethsemane. When everything in Jesus' humanity was trying to escape, or was, his choice would have truly been to find a different pattern, a different option for the plan of salvation. And he cried out to his father, Father, everything is possible with you. Take this cup from me. But his final choice was, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. It is a surrender to what God wants, not what I want. So how is that going to happen? In the book Steps to Christ, we read this passage. We need to have more distinct views of Jesus. That pattern that we want to follow, the more we look at it, our mere neurons in our brain will make his character become our character, and we will start acting like him. It says the beauty of holiness is to fill the hearts of God's children, and that in order for that to happen, we should seek for divine disclosures of heavenly things. I want to tell you that God will always answer that prayer, and he will bring every experience into your life necessary to help you understand his love for you and to change your character. I want to tell you a short story in closing of how God worked to change my life, perhaps very painfully, but the greatest joy because of what he accomplished in my life. I want to show you a picture. This is my little girl, Samantha. 
She is 11 years old here. And you wouldn't be able to tell by just looking at the picture. But where we are standing is at ground zero in New York City, where the Twin Towers went down. This was a very significant moment to me because my little girl, Samantha, at the age of seven, October 19, 2001, just a little bit more than a month after the Twin Towers came down, she was diagnosed with leukemia. And I remember thinking, you never know when your Twin Towers will come down. She fought a five-year battle against cancer. And in that process, God was working in my heart. I want to show you a picture in the progression. We're going to go to the very end of a five-year battle. Here she is. She is still with some consciousness, but what had happened was because of the treatments that she has gone, had gone through over five years, her immune, her immune system was suppressed, and a fungus started growing in her brain, and she was dying. What was happening was as that fungus grew, it was pushing her brain out her brain stem, and the moment it had grown enough that that would happen, she would pass away. She went into the hospital, and the day she, this, it, it happened rather quickly. Her, she was with her father. We were in a separated divorce situation. And he called me up and he said, I'm taking Samantha to the hospital. She can't move and she can't talk. And so I met them at the hospital. And that's when we found out that there was fungus in her brain and that her days were numbered. She was semi-conscious for about the first week. And one of the last things she did to me was tell me, Mom, she couldn't say it with her mouth, but she could move her right side, and she said, I love you. My parents, my mother was there, family and other friends supportive. This is a picture of my mother. She's holding Samantha's hand as she's over her dying granddaughter. And I didn't find out until after my daughter passed away what my mother was thinking. What was going through her heart was what was going through my heart. She looked at her daughter, granddaughter, and she said to herself, if I could have any amount of money, if I could, if it took a billion dollars to save my granddaughter, I would get the money somehow. But she knew that there was no amount of money that would save her granddaughter. She felt that if she could take her granddaughter's place, I will die instead. I don't want you to go. I want you to have life. She would have done that, but she could not. Nothing could change the situation. And at that moment, she realized the sacrifice that God made for us. Because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, because of our sins, Jesus had power in himself to say, it's enough. I don't want to do this. We can find another plan. 
but there was no other plan that would work. The father could have said, okay, stop, just like he stopped Abraham's hand from sacrificing Isaac. But with all the power to change the situation, both the father, the son, the Holy Spirit said, this is what we must do to save man. And they went through the pain. I want to tell you, I've learned from this experience that whatever it takes to go to heaven, it's cheap enough. God will not ask us to do anything here that will not build our character for eternity. So whatever we face here will be a short time. We are told that Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. And that when that character of Christ is perfectly reproduced in his people, he will come to claim them as his own. I want to appeal to all of you, whatever big or whatever little problems you're facing in your life, whatever sins have you enslaved, that there is a God in heaven that has the power to free you and that there is nothing worth holding on in this world because what God has for us is joy evermore. It will be like nothing you've ever had. And his invitation is to you today, trust me and let go and come enter into my kingdom. That is my desire for each one of you today. And I pray that you might find the strength that God has to give you every day. Thank you. God bless you. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.